Hello everyone, welcome to the Emerging Pod, where we get emerging people into emerging careers. Today's guest is Anna Koroleva, who is now a, convers a conversational AI engineer at Springbok. Anna has a linguistic background, having worked for a bit as a forensic linguist before moving into more analytical roles and starting to work with NLP algorithms. She has a joint PhD in computer science with the University of Amsterdam and Paris-Saclay, and she regularly volunteers in AI for Good projects. Anna, great to have you with us. Thank you for inviting me, and thanks for a great introduction. That was very comprehensive and very nice. That's a good use of that French accent, so. Thank you. <laughs> yes, I did think that. I don't think I can pronounce it that nicely. So, Anna, thanks for being with us. Uh, let's jump straight into the beginning. So you studied linguistics at university. What made you choose that field? And did you have any specific expectations in terms of what kind of careers this would open up? That's a um, funny question because uh, when I was studying at school, I was always good at maths, but I never particularly liked it because it just happened that some of my math teachers were not that nice and particularly not that nice to some of my friends. And that when you're a kid, you don't really filter out, you know, you don't divide teachers from um, the domain. So I always loved languages, literature, so kind of the, you know, humanities um, subjects. And we had great teachers in those. So uh, when I was choosing my, I was choosing, you know, what to study at university. And I knew that, okay, I don't want to completely go into humanities because I do love maths and I'm fairly good with it. But also I didn't want to go completely into maths because I, w I didn't love it that much. And um, then I came across linguistics and that's basically... Um, a part of the philological faculty or the faculty of letters in, in some other terms. So it's kind of, you know, humanities in a way, but it does have maths, it does have programming, and you can go into fields such as, you know, NLP, natural language processing after that. So you get choices and you can choose to be a translator if you want, or you can go into programming. So it gives you a good background to then choose a quite varied career path, or at least it seems like that when you enter in. Because then when I was studying, we actually had much more theoretical linguistics than, um, you know, computational approaches. So that wasn't, we did have it, but there were not that many open source tools to learn at the time. So it was taught as, as well as it could be back then, but it wasn't as good as, as it is now, as I know. And yeah, I, I didn't really know what I would do when I, even when I was graduating, it was a big open question. Where do I go next? And I think it's the case for many other people as well. Big time. Yeah, a lot of people relate to that. I relate to that as well. Um, so then how did you, what was that first job like for you and how did you choose it? How did you transition? So as, um, as Sofian said, it was in uh, forensic linguistics and I think I was just looking for jobs with literally with the word linguist in title. And um, I did think about trying translation, but it's not really easy to get into it or if I was interested. So I didn't really land the chance to get in there. Um, I did look at different, you know, um, careers connected to publishing, such as editor or stuff like that, but I didn't really feel that interested. And then there was a forensic linguistics job and it kind of sounds interesting. Like, it's like you live in a detective and I love detectives. Um, so I went for it and it turned out it wasn't really a good place. It was, as we call it now, it was a toxic workplace. Back then, I didn't really even know um, that that type of words, but it was it was just bad. It was um, 
I don't like to say bad things about my uh, past employers, but it's really true that um, they did a lot of things that were wrong, unethical. They didn't treat employees well. So I survived for eight months. <laughs> Most of my colleagues survived two weeks to two months. So, so I was <laughs> one of the <laughs> longest there, but I was desperate to get out. And I was looking for jobs and I was looking, I think, for half a year. And there was not really many things that would be suitable for me. Again, I couldn't get into translation and I didn't really want to go into editing or copywriting. And then there was that one job as an analytical linguist um, at a text mining company. And I applied. I had no idea what I would be doing. I had no idea what it would be like because even when we graduated, we knew that, you know, computational linguistics NLP exists, but we had no idea what it is like to work in it. But I applied and I really loved the people. I loved the company. It was a very nice, friendly interview and everything. And I was like, yeah, I really want this. I don't know what I'll be doing, but I want this. And I managed to get it. I was really lucky to be, you know, to be there at the right place in the right time. Um, and I got in and I really fell in love with NLP and everything related to that after that. So that was almost, it was almost random, you know, uh, because I just, I needed some job. I didn't want to leave that uh, bad workplace for nothing because, you know, we all have hobbies to maintain or whatever. And you don't always just want to go into um, the work market without a job to sustain you. So that was almost a random choice at the time. And it just happened to be the right one. Yeah, definitely. The best time to look for a job is when you have one. Uh, it just makes the, the exactly exactly easier. because you're, you're a little bit less desperate right exactly yeah so you then jumped into analytical linguistics um so like you mentioned uh, linguistic is sort of maybe perceived as being a non-technical field although it's changing when was the first time you applied data science or data science concept to a linguistic problem so I think I did touch on it in that first um, analytical linguist role but um, it wasn't a fully fledged data science role because uh, we worked with NLP, but more rule-based. Um, so for example, extracting entities such as locations or people's names, you can try to you know, define some rules like location can, can go with specific prepositions or it has to be capitalized and so on and so forth. So um, there's a lot to do there for a linguist. It's, it's a lot of fun, uh, but it's not really the kind of best up-to-date approach. And we did have some machine learning um, models as well, but as linguists, we worked more on preparing data for that. For example, there could be data sets that would be annotated with some problems or contradictions, and we would need to go and find ways to fix it. Again, not by hand, we would try to, again, write a script or write some regular expressions to fix that. And then we would give it to programmers and they would train models. So. Um, I was kind of side by side with more, you know, machine learning um, type of work, but I wasn't training models by myself. I wasn't writing those scripts. And at some point, um, even new linguists that we were hiring, they knew much more about machine learning than I did. And I was like, all right, this is actually the kind of mainstream approach that's bringing better results in our rules. And I needed to go and learn about that. And that's what's the time when I um, understood that, okay, I, I need to go and study some more. I need to go do a PhD and I did, and that's when I moved to France. Yeah, I studied some machine learning there. And to be honest, I keep learning always because it's it's such a big domain, you know, data science and all around it, you never know enough. It is, and it's continuously evolving and very quickly these days, especially. Um, it's a good segue into the PhD. I was gonna ask what, you mentioned why did you actually start the PhD, but what was the PhD about? What did you 
study during so it was in um in the domain of nlp for well for medical domain for analyzing clinical articles reporting clinical clinical trials um so it's actually quite interesting i'm i'm really um, i really love the topic i was working on so i'm going to talk a bit more about it please um so there is a problem that's called spin and that's basically when you come up with a new treatment new intervention you have to run a clinical trial when you compare that intervention to something that already exists or to a placebo, there is no known um, treatment for whatever you're studying. And there are some statistical tests that you run and you can prove that your new treatment is good or maybe you don't prove that. That's sad, but, you know, it happens. Um, and so then you write it up and you submit an article reporting your trial. And sometimes people write these articles in a bit of a biased way because obviously you always believe that what you invented is great. So it can be subconscious, but people try to write it more positively than maybe they should. Maybe they focus on some kind of uh, secondary findings that showed something good, but not the main finding, not the main reason why it was even needed. Or they just misinterpret statistical tests. That also happens because, again, clinical trials people are not always statisticians. They have statisticians on the team but it still means that you can mis misinterpret something. And that can have bad impact because if my intervention is not good, that means that people should not be using it. But if I write it in a way that people perceive it to be good, I mean, the doctors will start using it. Patients will get hopes that, all right, this terrible disease can be cured now. And that might not be the case. So that's really, um, really harmful. And my job was about trying to come up with NLP algorithms to um, basically to say that, all right, here is spin and it's here, here and here. And there's lots of types, lots of um, variants of it. So we only focused on a few, obviously. And yeah, I think we, we did something quite interesting. So unfortunately, it's only in my GitHub. It's not implemented anyway yet. <laughs> I hope someday in my life I will get to um, push it a bit forward and uh, make it actually used somewhere. Never too late. Uh, it's interesting. I, um, my, the first place I would want to try it is on certain adverts, just to see what the the outcome would be. Um, it's it's quite specific for clinical trials domain, so it might not come up with anything. But uh, like I think it, it's relevant for that as well, because obviously adverts is the the quintessence of biases. Because you say, all right, we are the best here. And even I remember some old advertisings. I don't know if they still do it, but they used to have some, uh, for example, if, if it would be some, you know, um, house cleaning stuff, they would have some generic product, just a standard white, you know, bottle and saying, all right, our product is better than this. And we proved it by those <laughs> and those trials. And think, yeah, all right. <laughs> the generic product doesn't even exist. It's not a thing. <laughs> what did you compare it? So it's 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 all there, you know. It's it's not just clinical trials. It's it's the same in many other domains. We just don't really see it because we don't think about it. And to be honest, even in NLP, when when we write our articles, we always want to say, right, my model is really the best. And unfortunately, we do bring biases into that as well. So it's it's not just biomedical domain. It's everywhere, especially political advertising. <laughs> That'd be an interesting oh, one to look at. Actually, the term spin comes from politics. There is a notion spin oh. doctor. Oh. And that's someone that as a, you know, as a high profile politician, you can hire someone who would try to either enhance your profile or maybe compromise your rival's profiles by mm. manipulating public opinion. So like if, if you write something bad about someone in, in a specific way, without necessarily directly lying, but just, you know, throwing some hints around, you might actually impact the opinion quite of, of people quite a lot. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm not big on politics, but I can imagine that actually is quite a big instrument for you know manipulating people's thoughts. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What was the what was the state of the NLP field at the time? What were the main challenges back then? So when I was first um, getting onto NLP, it was actually fairly small, particularly compared to now. So let's say, um, like looking for NLP jobs that could be maybe one job in half a year to a year. So it would really be hard, you know, if, if you are in the domain, it's hard to change jobs. And if you want to get into the domain, you really need to be lucky to catch that one job when, when it pops up. So since then it really changed. So even, um, back home, for example, now every major bank or mobile provider has its own AI or data science team, and they hire linguists and data scientists and machine learning engineers, and they work on chatbots or just analyzing whatever data they have at hand to improve their solutions. So it's really growing. And I think it's um, one of the reasons I went to France is because um, NLP and data science domain in Russia was kind of behind what it is in Europe and in the States, but I'm not in the States, so <laughs> let's talk about Europe. So it's, it's, it's more kind of on the front end here in France, in the UK, where I am now. And I really wanted to kind of get out here, see what it's like here. And now it's actually catching up back home as well. And I know that many other countries are also um, trying to move forward with the domain because obviously it's everywhere now. You hear about it everywhere. Even, you know, chat GPT made people very much um, familiar with NLP, with conversational AI, because, okay, it's there and you can actually do something with it. It's it's good enough now to be practically useful. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think it's, it's really gone a very long way since I started. And I just remember that feeling when, you know, you look for a job of your profile and there's nothing coming up and nothing and nothing and nothing for months. And it's not like that now. Now, now I think the, there is another problem now. I think there's so many jobs and so many companies and they define the roles differently. So you can have the data science title or machine learning engineer or NLP engineer or data analyst. And there's some set of skills that's common, some set of tasks that's common. But different companies will define it differently. So they might call a data analyst a data scientist or the other way around. Then there's data engineering, which can be a separate title or can also come with one of the other titles that, that you know that I uh, mentioned. So it, it can be really hard and it can be really hard to understand what you want because maybe you are more of a data analyst type of profile, but you get into a data science and you're really unhappy there or you know the other way around. And maybe there is just that little change in the domain that you need to make to be happy. But how do you find out if, if your job title is what you thought it would be, but you're not enjoying it? It's very easy to decide that this field is not for you. Mm-hmm. But what you need to do is you just need to slightly change the focus, make this little shift. And I think it's quite overwhelming now. Because if, if you look for data science jobs, there's a ton of them. But they're also different. They request different tech stacks, different domain knowledge and I think it's, it's, it's more of a pain of choosing now. I think also when you apply for jobs now, you can apply for all data science jobs you find. And you will be rejected from many of them because maybe you're not in right right fit, but maybe they're also not right fit for you, but you don't get to understand that. And that's I think it's quite hard and it can be quite depressing because, okay, you're a data scientist, you're applying for jobs. It feels like you're a fit, but you never really know all the details. And there is that right job for you, but how do you find it? Yeah, that's a very good point. <clears throat> and um, I think you mentioned, yeah, different people, different companies have different definitions for things. 
And especially when you go down into like smaller companies, startups, people wear multiple hats. So you might say that you're looking for a data scientist, but they actually do a lot of, they have to do a lot of the data uh, labeling, some data engineering to make sure everything flows in correctly. So yeah, I th that's one of the problems we've spotted as well. There's not a clear, cohesive communication in the industry about what's needed, what are the different job roles, what do they do, and what, what are the skills that are required. So that's part of the problem that we're trying to address. Um, but then going back to, to when you finished your PhD, at that point, how did your portfolio look like? What was, what was in your portfolio? Um, did you have one? To be honest, it wasn't huge. So basically, it was just my uh, PhD project, which was a terrible, huge mess, to be honest, sitting on my GitHub. <laughs> and that, I mean, it's, it's a good project. It did good things, but it wasn't modular. It wasn't easy to reuse. Like, it, it just had a lot of things that were kind of all blended together. And sometimes I even got messages from people saying, all right, I want to use just this one model from it, but how do I do that? And it would be really hard to do that. And I actually started rewriting it to make it much more simpler to just use any little bit of it that you want. And it's kind of still in the state of being rewritten, but there are some things that can be reused now. But um, basically, it wasn't huge and it was really quite difficult. And even then, you know, with a PhD, with everything, with um, I had worked by then in France, I had stages in the Netherlands, in the UK. So you would think, you know, you have a network, you have experience, but it was still hard to even get interviews, not even talking about jobs. So from many applications, I didn't even hear back mm. from, um, yeah, I think, I think that was basically the main outcome when I was trying to apply for jobs. And again, I'm from, I'm not from the EU, right? So I was under some pressure to get a job and that can also impact your decisions. It can put you in a rush. And sometimes it might mean that maybe you go down a path that's not your preferred path. So for example, I would prefer to move back into industry at that point, but I stayed mm. in academia for a while yeah. more. Uh, because I just didn't really hear back from anything in the industry. So did basically during my next um, step, which was a postdoc, then I started kind of building a portfolio properly. I, well, my GitHub is still a very erratic thing, but there's a bit more things there now. There's a bit more of even just little snippets of the things I learn. I try to put there because, okay, if you don't do it now, then a couple months later, you forgot what you've done and. Sure. You even forget to mention it in interviews and things like that. So it's really good to try to keep that up to date. And that's also when I started doing those um, AI for good projects. Mm -hmm. And that was a really, I think, quite a changing point because it can be really hard to start doing something new. Because, mm -hmm. all right, you've done a course. Okay, there's a thousands of people who've done the same course. So how do you get into a job with that? And that you can, you can do that by doing these um, volunteering projects. You can get experience, which then help you land a job. And that was a, a really big thing for me, I think. That's interesting. So that's um, Dina, right? Yes. And it's a community yes. where you, you kind of, if you're maybe a bit more entry level into data science or maybe a bit more mid as well, you can volunteer to help not-for-profits with any kind of data science projects that they have. Is that correct? Exactly, yes. Yeah. So um, basically the point, the original point I think was um, having some kind of alternative to Kaggle because on Kaggle you compete with other people. You don't work with the company who wants the result of whatever model you're building. Mm -hmm. So basically, yeah, you're trying to get that little improvement, but you don't collaborate or you can have a small team, but then there's hundreds of other teams that are also working on the project. So you don't get together. You don't get to come up with the best result just because, you know, it, it, you don't get to talk to other teams. You're trying to be better than them. But sure. if you bring people together and make them work together and not trying to fight each other, you can actually get to 
maybe not better results, but at least we get to one good solution combining all the knowledge <laughs> and not a lot of separate solutions fighting between each other. And basically that's what Omdena does. So they partner with um, different organizations like yeah, non-commercial companies, NGOs, uh, maybe startups in the fields of mental health or different environment initiatives. Um, like there was a project about um, increasing um, basically this the level of success of planting um, uh, forest or, you know, new trees in Madagascar, I think. And they were using computer vision to track the, like how many trees survived, how many do we need to plant more. Um, so basically it's, it's everything. It's NLP, computer vision, no kind of classic, you know, um, data, uh, data science with just kind of tabular data, you know, numeric data. So they do all kinds of things. And it's really good because, yeah, basically how I got there, I did some machine learning courses. I obviously did my PhD and I knew that, okay, I still don't feel like I know enough. I still don't feel like I have enough hands-on experience. And then I went there and I'm like, yeah, I used it in a course, but now I can use it in practice. Mm -hmm. And then you actually get to, you know, you're fighting with your data set because it's probably messy. <laughs> you're fighting with your model because it's probably not running for whatever reason, because you miss some little detail from that maybe just, worked with that nice and clean data that you had in your course, but now maybe you have crazy long text and you need to think more about how you, um, uh, how, how you organize your trimming and padding and things like that. So, and that really helps. And that also shows employers that you have some real world experience where you start from gathering the data, thinking about how do you even approach it, coming up with solution, potentially deploying it. It doesn't always get as far as a full deployment, but at least you can get something about it as well. Yeah, and, and it also really useful. I love them. I can't recommend them more. <laughs> it also shows a lot of initiative and drive um, and ownership to to do something, not just wait around. So I think that's very useful. Exactly, exactly. Uh, an and you also get to talk to the to the partner company, partner organization, so you can you know they say okay, we want this, and you can say okay, this you can do via those and those methods, and then you come up with how exactly you implement it. How do you do it in the most useful way? Because sometimes you know you can you can put a year on developing something and it will be cool, but maybe you can come up with something as a kind of, you know, MVP minimum viable product, which can be done much faster. And mm. that will bring some initial value. And when you have initial value, then you can invest more time in it. And that's with these short term projects, you really get to understand that, that, okay, you don't spend years researching this. You just need to figure out a quick way to do something useful. And that's how it works in the world, right? You don't always get three years to do a PhD to come up with a solution. <laughs> you, in a company, you need to be fairly quick. Otherwise, you just run out of money <laughs> and go bankrupt. It definitely teaches you to be more agile. So the amongst the, all the different projects that you've done at Amdina, is there a favorite that stood out? Um, it's hard to say because my first one was really great. So it was a very kind of early stage project with, um, uh, I want, um, the organization is called ACET and it works with, um, infrastructure in Africa. I will not remember the expansion of the abbreviation, but, um, yeah, it's African center for something. Um, but yeah, the, the goal was to try to understand how data science can be used to understand the needs of Africa in terms of infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And they, they didn't have any data science before, I think. So it was really very exploratory. We had to figure out what data is out there, how we can use it. So we had NLP and computer vision there. And it was, it was really nice because it was so open-ended and it started with a complete, you know, 
bit chaos. We didn't know what to do and where to go, but it ended up developing some really nice things. And I think they did kind of um, pick up on a few of them and continue developing, you know, full time after that. So that's really nice. Hmm. So that was good just because it was such a great team and such a great experience of going from completely nothing to something useful. And another one would be my first project with chatbots, because as you said, I'm uh, in, uh, in conversational AI now, and I was really interested. But again, I did some courses, I had no experience. And I just jumped into a project thinking, all right, I have no idea what I'm going to be doing. I have no idea if I know enough to take part in this, but I'm going to try. And I learned so much about Raza, and basically that's what kind of uh, took me to this job. And that's amazing because that's that's exactly the point of Omden. You get into a fairly niche domain, like chatbots, they're big now, but it's still a fairly little subfield of AI. And then you get experience and you understand the problems. You can you can talk about it in job interviews and people see that, all right, maybe you don't have tons of experience, but you understand the point. You understand what it's all about. So that's I think that's a, quite a classic example of how Omden helps people. You mentioned something interesting, which is, the not knowing whether or not you have the right skills and experience yet to apply those in a project. So do you have a process? How do you manage that balance between learning, doing courses, and then applying that in a project? Because what some people do is they kind of get stuck in just doing more courses and more courses and more courses. But at some point, you just need to yeah, stop I, I and apply them. Yeah, I was at that place. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I, I was in that place. And yeah, you, you know, you start learning... Let's say machine learning and you start with Coursera, then you find some more courses and more courses and longer courses, <laughs> whatever. And at some point they even start to kind of repeat each other because, all right, there's only as much as you can teach without, you know, actual practical experience. And uh, yeah, I just felt that, yeah, I, I can do more courses, but then I forget what I learned in the previous ones. Potentially they're repeating each other, so I'm not getting anything new. And I felt quite lost. Uh, and then I, um, it was it was fairly early days of Omdena, and I just saw some random repost or comment from someone in my network about one of their previous projects. I was like, this looks interesting. And I, I went to look at it, and I found that first project with um, the infrastructure in Africa. Like, okay, I can see some potential of NLP here. I'm going to apply, and whatever happens. And then basically I got in it, and basically when, once you, you got in it first time, it's much easier to kind of keep going because... You know, first time was good and you're in the community um, and you know that it's fun. So you just, you know, you can apply for projects and you can manage it better. And since then, I try to do projects more frequently because, again, you can do courses on MLOps or, I don't know, dashboards, whatever you want. But un un until you get to actually do it in practice, you won't really kind of, um, you know, it, it won't stay in your mind that well. And I really try to kind of uh, get back to Omdena fairly regularly. It can be difficult because it's quite a big time investment. And just every time you get in a project, something happens like some trouble in your personal life, something in your family, and then you're quite exhausted at the end because you have to manage it all. Uh, but I'm, I'm planning to hopefully do something um, in, in the next month. Because I think now it's it's been a while since I've done the last one. So I think it's time now, Jan, to, to get back into it. And you can also choose projects on different domains. So you can go into computer vision. It's it's really a big one. Um, there's projects with videos. Like one quite interesting one was about analyzing videos of, um, I think, um, people who, like babysitters, and I know people who care about children to identify potential abuse. Mm -hmm. 
And that's really cool because like I have no experience with working with videos and no experience with computer vision. So if I wanted to, I would go there and learn something. Because again, in courses, you learn only as much as they give you. And they can't give you a lot just because, all right, there's, there's an infinite amount of things you can do. So no course can, can cover all of that, no matter how good it is. Yeah. And I imagine for you now at the stage of your career, to learn something new, you need kind of, you need, you don't need to learn the basics anymore. It's just about having a problem that, that you need to solve. So if you want to get into computer vision, it's much more interesting and engaging to work on a project rather than just. Oh, I still need to learn basics sometimes because as, uh, as, as I said before, data science has so many kind of things around it, like software development is there, MLOps is there. If you want linguistics is also there, you can go into kind of domain, like subdomains like medical or whatever. So you can always learn something more on whatever side. Like, for example, for me, I have very limited experience with um, MLOps and that's something that I'm trying to study now. But again, you know, time is limited and everything. But um, again, it's it's something that, yeah, you can do tutorials, but then you get to practice and you kind of get a bit scared because, all right, it's kind of a responsible part because you're deploying something and people will see it, right? So it's, it's much better to try it you know, then with support of other people who are also learning, who are also making their mistakes. But some of them have that experience and they will explain it to you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it helps a lot. It really does. True, true. And so looking back a bit, you've gone from a non-technical background to moving more into now what's called data science. You've also mentored someone from going to go from biology, from a biology background to NLP background. Uh, yeah, so um, that was um, a girl student um, in Switzerland where I did my postdoc. And yeah, she um, she was in uh, biology previous to that and she wanted to do NLP. And so she was really motivated, really interested. So to be honest, I didn't really need to <laughs> do much because she was just, she, she's, she's a perfect person to mentor because, you know, if someone is kind of wanting but kind of lazy, it can be hard because whatever you tell them, if, if they don't do anything, you can't help, but she was just doing so many things on her own already. So I think from my side, I just helped her see a more practical side of it a little bit. Okay. Because again, she did courses and everything, but um, it can be hard to make the step from courses to kind of practice. Makes sense. Well, what would you say are the main things when, for someone that's going from a non-computer science domain to get into data science, what would be the main thing that they, they should focus on? So I think, um, like, I guess from my personal experience, I think it's really good once you've done some, you know, initial courses, it's good to get into something like, again, Kaggle or Omdena or all the kinds of hackathons that are there because you build some practical skills, you meet people, you network, and that's also important because when you meet more people, you, you talk to them, you understand the domain more, you figure out what you want to do, you learn from them, and you also just get more kind of um, exposure. Maybe you participate in events, maybe, you know, like I'm talking here now, right? <laughs> so you get, um, maybe you get invited to talk to someone or or you even go to those talks and again, you connect to people and that, that like, it's probably commonplace, but, you know, having a good public profile really makes you much more visible to recruiters. And yeah, maybe it's a bit stupid. It's not even a hard skill, but it works. So. <laughs> The world is like that. Um, so I think that's that's a really good one. So just try to go into the practical world and meet people and not be shy. There's a lot of um, a lot of platforms now that um, 
also offer uh, not just courses, but they help you build a portfolio. So I think that's also a good one because, again, you usually learn along with other people. So, again, you're building your network. You're learning from them. Um, taking part in open source projects is good, but I know some people who do that. I also know a lot of people who would be shy to do it. So it's it's a good one, but um, it can be a bit scary, of course. So I think it's important not to be scared because no one's been born perfect. No one's been born a data scientist. Everybody's done a thousand mistakes on the way. And as long as you're open to learn and, well, as long as you are working with people who are not completely grumpy, you will be fine. They will help you. There are grumpy people as well. There, there are people that will make you feel like you're an imposter. I had that in my life. I had that in job interviews as well. And it just happens. Just let it go. Don't let that, you know, make you feel like you don't belong there. It's it's fine. There's people with so many backgrounds. And again, if you come from, I don't know, if you come from medical background, for example, it's um, very natural to get into medical data science, like by NLP or whatever. There's a lot of applications for computer vision. And if you want from there, you know, you can then move to general data science if you want. So there's always paths that you can take. It's not always obvious how to find them. But again, try to talk to people as well, because um, I always try to answer people who ask questions about anything, because like, I'm not a guru of data science, but I've, I've made a few steps on the way, so I can try to help. And some people won't answer, and that's normal, because again, you never know what's happening in their lives. But it's, it's really good talking to people. It really helps, I think, most of the time. So just don't be shy, basically, and don't be scared. That's that's really important because I know how, how hard it can be and you feel like you are just complete imposter, you know, you don't belong here, you're not technical enough, but it's just not true. That's a, that's sound advice. Um, so having been through the recruitment process a few times yourself, you mentioned in one of the previous podcasts that I looked at that you... You had a story where at some point you just kind of froze during an interview where you knew what to say, yeah, but you just couldn't was... come out of it. Yeah, exactly. So it was quite a funny story because um, I was contacted by a recruiter and they sent me a job description that was way more technical than my profile. And it was also not in the location where I wanted. So I knew that it wouldn't be a fit, but I agreed to talk to them because why not? Um, and I kind of thought that we would have just a chat with the recruiter and we would figure out that it's not my profile. Maybe there is another job that I could you know, that I could be a better match for. But that didn't happen. They just threw me straight into a very technical interview. <laughs> and I, I actually, I was doing some courses prior to that. And I thought I did one of the kind of biggest, um, most um, prominent Coursera machine learning courses. And it was quite fresh in my mind and everything. But in that interview, it was too technical. I didn't really expect it to, you know, to just go straight into technical side. And I just freaked out. And I think the people I was talking to, they didn't really know that I was kind of invited there, that I didn't apply. So I think they felt like I'm just like, well, what is she even doing there? She, she knows nothing. <laughs> so it was just complete miscommunication from the beginning. And I sensed that and they sensed that. And I just freaked out completely. And yeah, I think they asked me something like, what is a neural network? And I had that picture, you know, in every course you do about neural networks, there will be a picture with some notes, some connections. And I just couldn't find words to explain that because you usually just get the picture in those courses. And I'm like, I can't answer this question. 
<laughs> and it's not that I don't know the answer. I just don't have the words for it. It was a complete shame. It was a complete failure. So now I can laugh at it. Now, you know, it's been a couple of years. But then obviously it was quite painful. And I'm afraid to to think about what they think of me because it was really terrible. And they kind of they had their own agenda, let's say. So they were not trying to understand who I was. They were just following, you know, their questions. And obviously that wasn't a fit for me. So um, that's probably also a hint for recruiters. Sometimes people come in, you know, from neighboring domains, from non-technical domains, that you have skills that you want, but maybe you just need to be a bit more open, you know, let people explain who they are, what they bring, because if you follow your agenda, you will miss out everything that they have to say. But again, I wasn't a recruiter there, right? So I, I just had to um, accept that it was a failure. Well, no. Again, that to everyone because it's it's normal to get frozen so um one thing that you can read on the internet sometimes is that you should go for as many interviews as you can and if you get invited to interviews just go because it's practice and it's also a skill and i noticed that with myself the more interviews i do the the better i do them and even you know questions about was it a neural network first time i didn't have the words but mm-hmm. when you do it a few times you will have the words even for these basic concepts and that's important. Yeah. Sounds stupid. <laughs> no, no, I think it makes it's just how it, is. it makes perfect sense. I had a, I had a similar experience where, uh, it was not in data science, but I applied for a role, uh, of so- software developer role, and it was for a company building CAD tools. And initially when we got there for the interview, they gave us a tour and during the tour, uh, the lady that was giving us the tour casually just mentioned, oh, it's interesting. Everyone here has a math background. I never thought about it. That's, that, that's curious. Didn't really think much of it. And then we sit for the interview and the interviewer asked, uh, well, he asked me, how do you determine whether, um, a point is within a circle? And I had, I have an engineering background. So my first thought is like, oh, computer vision, like this is how you would approach it. It's like, no, using math. And I knew the answer, <laughs> but because I hadn't used that type of math in such a long time, it took me a while to just remember. And a similar thing, we went through the interview and uh, there were a, very much like ma- a lot of math questions. And in the end, I knew I wasn't fit for the job. I was glad that I did this interview because I was like, oh, that refreshed some math that I haven't used in a while. I definitely don't want to work here because that's definitely not what I want to do. But it's, it's still a really useful experience. But yeah, on the moment you feel like, oh my God, what am I doing here? Uh, yeah, that's, that's also a bit um, of a thing, like what you say, you were thinking about it in terms of computer vision. And when you come to a job interview with, you know, some things that you've just learned or some things that you really like, you frame everything in that context, but sometimes you just need to kind of step back and just think naturally because, you know, sometimes it's it's a simpler answer or an answer from, you know, maths course that's maybe even from your school, or from your, your university. So it's not anything recent. It's not anything... You know, yeah. <laughs> so that we would even expect there. And that can be really hard. Like ask me a maths question now will probably fail, even if I know it, just because I haven't, I haven't written it down in a while. I haven't practiced it in a while. So I won't be able to say it. And that's, that's really funny. So it's, it's a lot about how information gets actualized in the brain. And if something is not kind of, uh, on, on top of your mind, you will just not be able to articulate it. And it doesn't matter how well you know it. You just, you will just forget the words and even worse if you're talking a non-native language mm. that's true yeah recency bias is a very powerful thing the things that you've 
recently came across are going to be top of your mind. Um, one thing we, we think about quite often is reflecting on your own kind of growth and skills and being able to quantify that to some extent so that you can communicate that further. Do you have any kind of um, process for doing that, for managing that? How do you reflect? How do you keep track of the skills that you develop, especially in such a quickly evolving field? So I think for me, there's maybe two ways. I'm sure there's more, but I guess one kind of common way of having a, you know, a track of what, you, of what you're doing is a GitHub portfolio, GitHub repos, because, all right, you've done a course on TensorFlow, PyTorch, or you've gone through tutorials for whatever NLP tools out there, like Hugging Face. And yeah, you know that you've done it, but it's, it's just maybe in your local computer. So just put it up there because then you actually know that, okay, here is a place where I've done this. And if, if I need to use it again, I can go there instead of, you know, digging out that course or tutorial. And it also kind of leaves track that, okay, here is my repo with TensorFlow. Here's my repo with Hugging Face. So you actually have some tangible proof that you've done it. And even for yourself, that works. Like, um, for me, I was like, if I've done a course, okay, I've done a course, maybe I have a certificate, but it doesn't feel tangible enough. When I have a repo, it actually feels like, all right, I have a trace. And another one that I also like is um, writing things like blogs or, you know, LinkedIn posts or whatever you prefer. Uh, because that's what um, I did with that uh, first project with Raza. We learned a lot. And there are a lot of things that are not so obvious from tutorials. So you need to just try a few things. It can be even, um, I think it was a thing that's called slot film. So when you're creating a chatbot, you need um, to keep track of some things. And there was a tutorial on how you save one. Uh, but there was no information about how you save a few. And there could be a few things, a few ways of writing that. And obviously I had to try all of them and see which one fails and which one works. And I just wrote it all in a blog, you know, with a, with a couple of other collaborators because that's how you remember it. And I was, I was almost approaching that blog as something that, you know, two months later I can come back to it and remember how do I set up a Raza project, how I do that slot filling or whatever else. And, you know, half a year down the line, you will not remember it. You will remember that you've done it, but you will not remember how. So having a blog with maybe snippets of code or links to, again, your GitHub repo or whatever will really help. And I think that's a really good one. And I think it's important not to think about how much it's getting read because it happens that, you know, you publish something and there's five views and you're like, oh my God, <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> but it doesn't matter because first of all, it all depends also on when you post it. And whatever, it's time time of the week, time of the day. So it, it's not, nothing about your post sometimes. And it doesn't really matter. As long as you can go back to it and use it to refresh your own memory, that's good. 100%. And, um, yeah, I know that some people write like short things, like maybe tweets or maybe short blogs or whatever. So all that works, just as long as you keep some trace. I guess it's good if it's something that you can easily navigate, like... LinkedIn is not always easy to navigate. Things that are far back in time can be hard to retrieve. Mm -hmm. So if you write in LinkedIn, maybe keep that also somewhere locally so that you can search through it or also have it on GitHub uh, just because, you know, internet is internet. One day LinkedIn goes down, we lose all our posts. So <laughs> try to <laughs> have some backup of it. Yeah, 100%. It's important to remember that when you post on these platforms, whether it's Medium, whether it's Twitter, LinkedIn, you are at the mercy of the algorithm. So 
exactly. factors like the time of the day when you post, how much engagement do you get uh, on the first, whatever, 10, 15, 30 minutes of it based on the time of the day that you post. All these different things will affect the the reach, engagement, and impressions exactly, that you get. Yeah. But if you if you remember that actually the most important thing is you writing down something so that you can put your thoughts in order and um, yeah, better clarify in your own mind what you did, how to talk about it. Um, that's the number one goal, I think. That's the most valuable thing. Exactly, yeah. And then the second thing is, okay, sure, you can have a bank of evidence that is published on different platforms. And if you care about becoming famous at some point, when maybe there's some kind of black swan event in your life and you there's a lot of attention on you people are going to see that oh you've actually been posting for a while so you consistently put out useful information um so i think that's quite important to keep in mind yeah not, get, not to yeah. get discouraged um, some some people that i really like um in terms of how they're building their career and their portfolio they just they even when they do courses you know it can be a course that everyone does but they don't just post their certificate they write that, okay, I've done this, I like this, I learned this, and they kind of, like, it's, it's very hard because, all right, I knew nothing and I don't know something. It's not so easy to say, right? It's, it makes you feel sure. like, again, you're a beginner, but being able to reflect on that and put it in words, again, it makes you, makes you accounted for yourself so you know what you've learned. It also makes it more visible and, you know, even if it's a beginner level, that's still a skill that you have started on. So, like, take a person who's never seen, I don't know, TensorFlow and take a person who's done even some beginner courses, who will be preferred for a job? Obviously, mm -hmm. the one who has some exposure. So, um, it's it's very hard not to be shy to do these things sometimes. Because, again, some people have friendly audience, some people will see, will see some, you know, bad reactions or whatever. That also happens. And just ignore it. <laughs> That's very, true. That's very true. That's um, We don't have too much time left, but I did want to tap into the, the final bit, which is conversational AI, which is obviously mm -hmm. a pretty hot topic. What kind of projects are you working on at the moment, just out of curiosity? Yeah, so I've, I've just started a new job, so I'm still, you know, getting, um, getting onto it. But uh, one project that I quite like is um, with a company in Germany, and they have... A lot of salespeople who drive around and they need to check, you know, where do they go next or whatever whatever product is available in this region or whatever, and they're driving, so they're in the car. Uh, so they can't use their phone with their hands because it's obviously dangerous. Mm -hmm. um, so they're, they're building or they have built and they're improving their voice assistant. Mm -hmm. So these people can ask a question like, yeah, what's my next destination or tell me about products in Bavaria or tell me about even um, they, they also have a part about, for example, internal topics such as career development. And basically they're building a huge bot about that. And I think it's pretty cool. I think it's quite cool how it's um, uh, how it's combined with voice technology because it's all the practical things. Like sometimes you say, all right, why do we need a chatbot? You can just Google it or, you know, even search through your internal database if it's internal topics. Why chatbot? And all right, if you can't use your hands, you do need some kind of conversation, conversational engine behind it, because even voice search is pretty much kind of getting into a conversation. But if you just even run voice search by terms, that's not natural. It's natural to talk. And I think that's that's a really cool case of why conversational AI, why do we not just yeah search a database and return most relevant documents? So I quite quite like that one. 
Yeah. And um, in general, I guess a, a more kind of generic thing that the company is doing um, as I don't know if I mentioned it or not, but um, the projects that I did um, with chatbots were with Raza and it's it's a really good tool and it's it's open source. It's very um, customizable, but it's quite um, maybe hard to get started with uh, because it's just a lot of kind of technical concepts, data formats and this and that, and it can be hard to set it up. So um uh, Springbok, where I am now, is building a kind of a visual tool where you can build chatbots without having to dig deep into into understanding Raza, mm. or you know, understanding the technical bits of Raza. So you just need to understand your flow of the dialogue, and I think that's that's really cool as well. So I think that's something that can help people get into building their chatbots much much faster than using raw Raza. Or I do love Raza, but <laughs> again, it's it's more for technical people than for anyone. So I think that's quite a cool um, addition to uh, to that. That's pretty cool. And I guess to add on to the inter the voice interface, I think there's probably also a generational aspect to it. I can see some of my Definitely. nephews and nieces. They are five. They don't know how to write properly, but they can still search things on YouTube and they can do that because they can just use the voice, the voice commands. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So as they're grow growing up, they're going to be more familiar and more comfortable using the voice interface and it's just going to be natural to them. Exactly, exactly. And I think there's also uh, a bit of like, yeah, there's a generational aspect. I think there's a kind of aspect of the domain because, you know, as a programmer, maybe you know how to do things without chatbots by just, you know, having an algorithm. But as a, you know, person outside of tech, you just want to ask a question and get an answer. And you don't necessarily want to um, kind of, think about that complex algorithm that you build. So there's a lot of things that different people use technology in different ways. And as a pro as you know, as a programmer, maybe you want to have control and to build your own algorithm. But as a, anyone else, you just want to ask a question and get your answer. And it's, it's quite funny talking to different people about it because um, some people are very optimistic, some people are very skeptical and it really can kind of reflect their background, their way of thinking. I think it's quite cool. True, true. And uh, so in that topic, what kind of impact does ChatGPT has on, on your field and what do you see the future of your field being? We're thinking actually about it very much um, at the moment because um, I've, I've seen a great post from um, someone in, uh, in conversational AI saying that there are basically two reactions to ChatGPT in the world of chatbots. Some company says it's, it's not good enough, it's not reliable, you can't control it. So... It's just not good. And some other companies say, all right, it's there. We've we got to use it because it's it's there and it's good. And I think um, we're pretty much working in, in the second paradigm. So we think that it's cool and it's really interesting to use it. And actually, we are having brainstorming sessions at the moment about how to implement it. And I think um, like it can do a lot of cool things. Like, for example, um, with Raza, you pretty much have, let's say, fixed responses. So you... You can write a few variants of them. You can try to tell Raza which ones to use, depending on whether you're talking to a child or to I don't know, elderly person, technical person. But it's quite it's quite an involved process doing that. So I'm not saying it's not doable, but it's not easy. And I think with other tools, it might also not be easy. ChatGPT gives you a chance to um, just write a prompt that would ask um, ChatGPT to, to rephrase your response in the way that would suit a particular audience, for example. And I think that's that's a quite a big step forward. And I've, I've seen um, that one of the first projects I did with Raza was 
um, about building a driving assistant and it was supposed to be um, personalized. So if you are an introvert and you don't talk much, it would adjust. Or if you talk a lot, <laughs> it would adjust. And it was really hard to do. And like, there's only binary logic that we could implement. Like, yeah, if, if a person has very long um, questions, ask in a longer way. Or if it's very short, ask shorter. But it's it's it was a pain doing that. And I think ChatGPT opens a very big opportunity into having it much more fluent, personalized, much less formal. Because again, with Raza, we usually write this terrible, bulky, completely unnatural answers saying that, sorry, this functionality is not implemented yet, blah, blah, blah. And that's terrible. We don't talk like that. <laughs> You can ask ChatGPT to rephrase it in a more natural way, and it will do that. So I think it's it's really a big step forward in that sense. And um, so I think a problem with ChatGPT is that it's not always easy to rely on it. Like um, if you ask it to give you some facts, it might just make it up. Um, like I, I was asking some questions just about some legal systems, and it can make up things like um, what's the longest term of punishment for a certain. Um, certain crime so it will it that that number will have been somewhere in that text but it wasn't in the right place and if you try to use it as a knowledge system you risk a lot that yeah if, if you trust that it might just screw you up uh but i think as long as you come up with a good way to use it and that you can control i think it, it really opens a lot of possibilities and i think i guess <laughs> funny to say but um obviously um Public awareness is a big thing. And I think a few years back, chatbots were rubbish and everybody knew that. So you would call your mobile provider, it would unleash a chatbot on you and you would never <laughs> get anything from it. Um, and now there is ChatGPT and it's showing that, okay, it's a system that has a lot of kind of knowledge, even if it's just, you know, what's on the internet, what's in the public texts, but you can ask common sense questions like, yeah, who is Einstein or when was he born and stuff like that. And it knows that. Or you can even sometimes ask more specific questions and it still knows that and it can ask correct, answer correctly. And I think that really shows that, all right, compared to 10 years back, the field is so much more advanced. So I think that there will be more interest towards it. There will be a, a boom of conversational AI just because people understand that, okay, it's, it's there now and it can do cool things. So let's do cool things with it. Yeah, 100%. It's really exciting to think about what's going to happen over the next 10 years, looking back, because ex progress is exponential. So um, exactly. it's going to be a fun, fun journey ahead. Um, Anna, we're kind of up for with our time. It's been a pleasure oh, yeah. speaking to you. Um, we'll definitely have you back Thank because you. It was, it was a pleasure for me. we still have a lot of questions, but we didn't manage to get through all of them. Um, just to wrap up, do you have anything you'd like to promote? Anything that you're working on that you'd like people to know about? Um, I think one thing that, again, I want to highlight is just don't be scared in your job search and try to do practical projects. So again, I love mentioning Omdena. I'm not paid by them. <laughs> I, I just really love it. But um, anything that, that helps you build practical skills and also meet more people from, from the domain is good. And it's probably very scary now on the job market. There was another round of layoffs announced yesterday. I, I think it's, I don't know, I think it's impacting people a lot, even people who are trying to get into the domain or trying to change a job, it's really scary. But time was never easy. When when I was looking for my first job, that would be one in half a year or one in a year. So it's never easy, but we always get there. So um, just don't don't lose hope. Never give up. I think it's very easy to lose hope now, but <laughs> <laughs>
I really hope um, not to see people getting desperate. I always feel sad about it because I understand it so much. I've been there, but it all works out in the end. It does. It's important to keep pushing and stay exactly. stay positive exactly. and ambitious. Brilliant. It was fantastic to have you on. Thank you so much, Anna. Thanks, Anna. Thank you. Thank you. It was my pleasure.